Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Jonathan G. Blanco with uh, TF Podcast. I'm excited for this next conversation. I get to sit down and uh, talk about uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin uh, with my alma mater, University of Washington. Uh, get to talk with uh, Zachary Nelson, and we are uh, doing this for a special event that they've been putting on and putting a lot of time and effort into uh, the UW Block Hacks. So it's a, a blockchain hackathon that's going on. Uh, the weekend of the 22nd. Interesting that it's going to be over, uh, starting with a Bitcoin uh, uh, pizza day. And uh, they're closing it out with uh, a series of events and, sorry, a series of um, guests and speakers, and I get to be one of them. And with that, I want to welcome Zach, and he's probably going to welcome me as well. <laughs> How's it's it awesome. going, Zach? Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, great to be on the show. You know, we've been wanting to collaborate with you guys for a while and super excited that we get to kick it off with UW Blockchain Hacks. This is going to be seen by students pretty much from all over the world, all the way from Waterloo to New York, uh, NYU to Cornell. So pretty exciting that we're able to distribute this content and conversation out to so many people who are really interested in learning more about you said. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, kind of just what's going on with the space now. And, you know, part of this is I'd really love to hear, you know, you said you go to, you went to UW, it's your alma mater. Now you're, you created this new TF blockchain, TF Labs. And, you know, part of this is I'd really love to hear kind of your journey creating that as well. So hopefully we can dive into yeah. that too here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, uh, UW is, is definitely has had a, a big impact in my life um, throughout my entire life, actually. And so, you know, I went to university. Um, you know, it's interesting. We're in like this really trying time right now with COVID-19. Uh, my first week on campus, literally um, two days after I moved into uh, my fraternity, 9-11 happened. Um, wow. And so it's really interesting uh, in that context, right? Like, obviously, we're in Seattle, not in New York. So it wasn't as impactful as if you were in New York, but it was still, you know, really, really interesting uh, time. And, you know, the, the mood and the somberness of, of how things were, you know, there, there's definitely some similarities to now. Um, but you know, I went to, to I, I studied uh, in the business school at UW. And um, what's interesting is when I was at UW, I wasn't thinking about technology as much as people do now. I mean, you got to remember, this is before the iPhone. And so I always use that as context, because um, really, when the iPhone came out is when we had this whole like app and startup revolution, uh, that felt like more broad to people. Don't get me wrong. There's people doing computer science, obviously. And, you know, there's things like the dot com and there's people doing that. But for me, it didn't seem quite as accessible. Um, it felt too foreign for me uh, at that time. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I graduated in 20, 2005 and just kind of started doing entrepreneurial things, um, did a little bit of time in, in banking, particularly in mortgages. And um, about uh, 2008 is when I started, uh, I, I left the mortgage industry right after uh, the financial crisis because uh, I didn't really enjoy it anyway. And I was like, you know, this is going to be down for a little bit. I don't, I don't want to mess with this. So I was in the mortgage industry up until then. And then I got into retail tech and that's what I've been doing since then. And with retail technology, um, it just was really fascinating to me because I, I love the aspects of transactions and just the whole like goods and services. And it's something that we all do. Everybody transacts. Uh, it's the one thing that every single person on the planet does at some capacity. And so as you make that more accessible has just been something that's been really fascinating um, to me. So 
so yeah, so that's kind of what I've been doing and, and got involved in blockchain because I was trying to solve um, transactions and loyalty. Uh, and that's what got me interested in the space and started doing events like this. I, I, so I kind of have a question for you here. What year did you first learn about Bitcoin? When was like your intro? Oh, well, so when I learned about it and when I paid attention to it are two different things. And sadly, okay. I, I always say sadly. So <laughs> I think I learned about it in like 2012 or 2013. And, you know, I, I had friends that were using it, but I was thinking of it more as like this gaming, you know, they, they were gamers. And I was thinking more of this gaming token at that time. And I, of course, didn't pay attention to it, nor did I really even study it at the time. And I wish I would have because I grew up in a household that was not, I don't want to say cypherpunk, but of that mentality, right? Of, of uh, that's kind of how like my upbringing was, is like, you know, being control of your stuff and, and, and kind of uh, that self-sovereignty aspect there. So, but I just, I didn't pay attention to Bitcoin. And then in 2016, um, I started paying attention to it because, uh, uh, you know, it's just another friend started talking to me about it. But honestly, what got me interested overall was, you know, I, I hate to say it now, but it was Ethereum uh, as a fundraising mechanism. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like Ethereum as a fundraising mechanism, ICOs, those are, that seems really interesting. I did a lot of study into that and then realized at that point, like, oh, I'm not doing an ICO and I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I, I made that realization, but that is what piqued my interest. And then when I started thinking about how, um, the exchange of value between participants in a network, I was like, wait, that's really similar to how loyalty works. And so where my fascination when it comes to Bitcoin, or sorry, cryptocurrency, or when it comes to blockchain is specifically in the loyalty space and how we think of how uh, in-network currency could work within an organization, a system and so forth. That's what I'm bullish on. I'm less bullish about some of these projects that are, you know, have some their own token mechanics in situations that might not make sense. Um, so kind of where I say is that I, I'm on polar opposites of the spectrum. I'm really bullish on Bitcoin and what that means from a financial instrument. And then I'm really bullish on um, in-network currency. So like Visa came out with an announcement, that they're going to do a digital currency. That's super interesting to me. Um, you know, Walmart has thought about their coins, a uh, Walmart coin. You Facebook Libra is really interesting to me. But the reason why I say I'm interested in both ends of the spectrum is because um, I'm a product manager. And as a product manager, I've been taught that you need to build products for your consumer and for your customer base. And so I think the value proposition for Bitcoin is super clear. I want to be in control of my money. I don't want to have other people have access to it. Um, you know, I want to use it as a store of value. Like those um, uh, consumer um, validation points are super clear. On the opposite side, when you think of Visa and a Visa having its own internal token, its own internal cryptocurrency, that's super clear too. And I'll tell you why. Because that loyalty, that we're, what we're talking about is loyalty points. You earn points currently on Visa right now, likely, if you have a credit card. If you have a credit card that you're spending and you're not earning points, like get a credit card that spends points, you earn <laughs> points, right? And so what you have to do with these points is that you then go to some marketplace and you can buy a gift card or you can get cash back or you can do these things. So if you have a, a currency, a Visa crypto, you essentially have a loyalty point and then you essentially can pay with that loyalty point anywhere and it makes their process and their system better and easier so that is really interesting i don't think it's a threat to bitcoin at all 
uh, someone who has Bitcoin isn't going to say, oh, I'm going to abandon this Bitcoin and I'm going to just go all in on Visa, you know, cryptocurrency. Yeah, sure. um, they have two separate lanes to operate in. And as of right now, um, you know, they're, the way you're going to transact the most is Visa frankly, right? And so if you have to transact anyway via Visa, like you might as well get currency for it that you can use and that's in their network. And uh, and then from a Visa standpoint proposition, it makes a lot of sense for them too, because they can reduce fees and they can be in control and they can understand, you know, they can understand how the payments are happening or the what's happening um, transactionally even inside or potentially outside the network. So anyways, that's, that's what's fascinating to me about that. No, I mean, now you just gave like a, you know, really large spectrum going from kind of Bitcoin being adopted back, you know, in the day, as you mentioned, 10 years ago, pretty much was Bitcoin pizza day. Yeah. Angelo paid $10,000 for Bitcoin uh, or for pizza. And now Visa is adopting some of the same technology that made that transaction happen. Um, and that arc of innovation is pretty incredible. Um, and I agree. And it's been what, like 10 years. And since we've gone from, you know, pizza to visa. So right. pretty incredible. And, and, and the reason why I say like, I'm, I'm, I don't care as much about what's in the middle. It's not that I don't think they can figure out, figure it out and maybe they can. And by the middle, I think it's like the majority of cryptocurrency or blockchain projects that are out there. Um, that are not tied to an established brand is because I'm also mm -hmm. a, a startup person and I know how hard it is to get market entry into a, a business opportunity. Obviously, Ethereum has done the best job, you know, with it so far because they have partnerships with, you know, Microsoft and IBM and, you know, they have consensus and they have all these other things. So they're probably doing the best job uh, so far. But again, we have to remember that tech, most technology is pretty commoditized. And so, um, you know, sure, like there's some elements of that, but there's no reason for another company to not be able to stand something up or take elements of it. To my understanding, Visa is using Ethereum uh, blockchain uh, for what they're doing. Um, but, you know, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how what happens in the rest because it's not necessarily, uh, you know, matured out yet. But uh, yeah, I, I do believe one day you'll see a world where every single major brand, um, every single major company will have its own in-network currency. Probably won't be decentralized, but they'll have some level. They'll take elements of cryptocurrency and bring it into what they're doing because it, it just makes business and uh technological sense for them to do yeah I, I i totally see that and i saw that firsthand i i interned at ripple um this past summer and they're definitely leaders in the enterprise space and you know this is everyone this is public information you know they've signed hundreds of clients banks big businesses who are now transacting using this technology and consumers aren't actually aware that you know maybe they send friends their money or uh, money to their friends in the philippines or whatever the case may be, it will be cheaper, faster, more reliable. And it's not like the user interface for them is going to change and how they're sending that money. It's just all of a sudden the processes will be much more seamless. Yeah. And I think that that's where a lot of the adoption of blockchain is happening. And it's just kind of happening all, all around us. Like another example, I mean, again, I, I've been trading block, uh, Bitcoin since 2011. So I think at the time Bitcoin was like 11 or $12. And I think that summer or in the next couple summers, it crashed down to like $6 at one point. And everyone was like, it's over. Like Bitcoin is dead. Move on to the next thing. And, you yeah. know, yesterday I was in Safeway and there's a 
Coindesk or, you know, sorry, not Coindesk, like a Coinstar. Yeah. Coinstar selling Bitcoin. Yeah. And so it's just kind of, it's been really cool uh, for me to watch that adoption. Although I have to say, I think a lot of it is still tied to Bitcoin. Even funding cycles seem to kind of rely on the price of Bitcoin. Even today, as they're talking about Visa implementing these large scale adoptions, I've talked to VCs who still say, you know, I, I watch the price of Bitcoin and that can actually even affect funding for enterprise level. Do you think that, you know, that correlation will continue over time or do you kind of see that breaking up in the next, maybe ten, the next 10 years of Bitcoin? Yeah, in the next 10 years, I think it does. I, I think there will be a deep, so my personal opinion and people will probably disagree with this is that um, I think there will be a decoupling of Bitcoin from blockchain in narrative, right? And so for those for those who are really in Bitcoin, you know, you hear a lot of these people say like, you know, Bitcoin, not blockchain, right? Like there's like the, the, right. a lot, even a lot of Bitcoin people say that they don't see the need for blockchain and enterprise and they're very much against it. Um, what what the reality is, is that if, if you've ever developed software or worked in that field, when you're creating software, you're creating a system of requirements first, right? You're saying like, I have a business need or a technology need, and I'm gonna establish some requirements of what we need to achieve. And then you start breaking down like, what's the technology or what are the ways that we're gonna be able to do this, right? And so the reality is, is for most enterprise blockchain, there are elements of blockchain that make a lot of sense. But in this full decentralized, basically make a mimic of Bitcoin, it does not make sense for enterprise blockchain. They would never do it. They would never make their information available on a public ledger, regardless of how cryptographically secure, because they don't need to, because it doesn't do anything for their business. It might do things for, create this level of transparency for everybody else that um, wants it, but for the people operating in that business, they just need it to be decentralized enough for them, right? So like if uh, supply chain gets used a lot. So if there is a supply chain consortium um, and you know whether that be from the manufacturer all the way to the, the people transporting it via freight to you know getting to your door, the people in that consortium are the ones who need to trust each other. Sure, there needs to be an element of consumer trust, of course, um, but for that to be fully 100% public, it doesn't matter. And so the reason I'm saying I think there'll be a decoupling from the uh, the perception from external people not in the space of Bitcoin and, and, and blockchain is that I think we'll start to see a lot of companies that are using these elements of blockchain and blockchain won't be as cool anymore, uh, meaning um, it won't be like as uh, like this neat word to say. So like five years ago, it was AI. Everybody was saying AI, 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 um, you know, maybe five years before that it was IOT. And now those are just things we just think about, right? Like, oh yeah, like that's an IOT thing. Um, and so also from a VC standpoint is, um, we have to remember that VCs, this isn't a knock on VCs, but VCs invest in either people they know, companies they know, or people who know those other, other two, right? And so um, if, you're met, if you're talking with VCs that have never invested in cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or um, a blockchain company, of course, they're going to have you know, some sort of reservations out because they don't understand it, right? Uh, at, at least at the, at the at enough at a level that they're willing to make that an investment. But where if you talk to someone like, you know, Anthony Pompliano or the Winklevoss twins or DCG um, or these different funds 
that are specifically dedicated to that, you know, they're naturally going to be more bullish towards those things because their funds are set up for that, of course. Um, but they have skin in the game already. So it's easier to make those decisions. And just as a comment, even outside of crypto is that um, I think it's really important to wait the feedback that you get from investors and from anybody for that matter of like, if, if someone tells you that something will or will not work or their opinion is like, you need to wait how much experience or understanding they have of that space based off of that. Right. So like if, a, if there is a, a VC that maybe has no idea how Bitcoin works, but they're really, they really know how FinTech works. You probably actually do want to take that at a higher weight because they really understand FinTech and finance. But if it's, I don't know, a consumer or a CPG person, you know, telling you is like, okay, well, I appreciate your feedback, but it's, I understand you probably don't get this as much as, you know, say someone else. For sure. Cool. Yeah. I'm really, I'm glad to get your, um, definitely your, you know, perspective on the industry. I kind of wanted to bring it back to kind of your personal journey, uh, building TF and kind of, you know, how that's going with COVID right now. So, I guess kind of a, a general question is as we kind of transition into this lockdown in the event space you know how do you kind of see that affecting the blockchain event space and kind of the the future of events in the space and that's kind of a, a big pivot but it's definitely something i think you yeah. probably have an idea on yeah i think that um you know when it comes to covid i, I think what's been difficult for me is everybody's opinions regardless if they're similar to mine or not and what i mean by what, that what is are your opinions? what are your opinions did you want to share uh yeah no i don't mind I, well my biggest opinion is i think you need to let people make their own decisions as long as they're not infringing on other people's safety and so what i mean by that is like if someone does want to go outside and they want to go for walks or they want to be in public spaces cool do that just don't infringe on other people's safety so if people are saying things like wear a mask because it might prevent the spread just wear a mask just be considerate right um if you don't if you want to stay in your home and you're freaked out about whatever stay in your home like i i just i don't like it when people try to convince other people of what to do and, and what i mean by that so so um you know, when you tie that to like the event space, I, I think there will be a time where we, you know, things get back to normal. And um, we do, I, I know a lot of people say like, there's going to be this new level of normal. Um, I, I, I do think that people have a tendency to forget things really fast. Um, uh, and so while I do think it will take a, a considerable amount of time, uh, I do think that there will be a truly back to normal um, type of phase at some point. Um, but I, I do think it's really interesting that there's a lot of opportunity to, um, create virtual spaces and to create conversations with people. Like, you know, I've had people on my podcast that I never would have had otherwise, um, from different parts of the world. And it's because my thesis beforehand had always been, uh, I interview people in person and then we do a video in person and, you know, it's more like, so we can have that human connection. And, you know, I, I had someone, uh, Zuby, who's a rapper um, and also a big Bitcoin guy, uh, and he lives in um, somewhere in England. I can't remember who, where, I mean, sorry, um, you know, as well as a couple people from China and just people that I just wouldn't normally have. So I, I think there's a really interesting opportunity for that. What's also interesting is that um, the level, the, the playing field has been leveled. And... Um, 
uh, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, uh, he recently tweeted how something on the lines of like he doesn't understand or, or he's noticing that CEOs of larger companies are less inclined to go on mainstream media right now. Yeah, um, I saw that. And, yeah, and, and the, the, the where he's going with that is that he's like, you know, for a company like Coinbase, he can go on CNBC, for example, but the majority of his audience probably isn't on the CNBC. The majority of his audience is probably listening to some influential podcasters and influential YouTubers. And so that's super interesting when, you know, I, 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 I'll watch ESPN every once in a while and they're having a conversation the same way you and I are via Zoom. And so, and a lot of times their audio is worse than ours. So you're like, you're ESPN. How have you not coached the person that's there? How have you not bought them a mic and sent them to him, right? Like if I'm ESPN, I would buy every single person that's part of the staff, a microphone and condensers and you know things to absorb the sound and I ship them to their house and I give them instructions like, this is what you do, this is how you set it up so we can continue to sound pro. But you know, you have, um, Richard Jefferson, uh, who uh, went to Arizona and, you know, is an NBA basketball player doing a Zoom call in front of his bed. And so you could say like, hey, like, I'm, and I'm not knocking him for that, by the way, you could say a that like, bit. hey, well, no, 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 because like, I get where I'm trying to go with that is that it's, um, it's proof that, you know, people like us, other content people, we can do things anywhere, right? You know, you might think that I'm at, at office right now. This is a green screen. So th this is a green screen right now, right? And so the game has totally changed on how we consume content. And it's, uh, there's, there's a big opportunity for people of, of anywhere to just try. Like, you know, why not create your own content and, and start to, um, you know, build a community around something that you're passionate about? Here, here's a question that I'm kind of thinking as you're saying this, right? So. Yeah. Right now, there's a lot of free content, right? Consensus was free. People could, you know, tune in anywhere they wanted online, watch it. As you mentioned, there's lots of other kind of things going out for free. Once things go back to normal, uh, do you think the floor will drop out a little bit? Do you think that people will kind of not really want to pay for that mainstream media as much because they're so used to having all this free, excellent content? Yeah, uh, that's a great question and definitely something I've thought about. I think, so there's always someone who pays, right? It's just, who is it going to be? So is, you know, is it the consumer that's going to pay? Is it a sponsor that's going to pay? Is it the conference organizer or the, uh, you know, the person putting out the content? Are they paying? Someone has to pay, right? And um, the way the way that we consume content has just shifted so much. So like, uh, I, I haven't seen numbers recently, but a couple days or sorry, a couple weeks into the pandemic, the movie theater, um, gross earnings were like $5,000. It was something absurd, absurd. Right. And, you know, I can watch a brand new movie on my phone, on my house, um, on my house television, um, that's supposed to go to the movie theater. You know, someone, I haven't gone to the movie theater in years. Um, but for those, uh, that, that do I, I personally am more comfortable uh, watching a movie in my house because I can be in my pajamas I can lay on the couch and you know my TV's 50 inches because a 50 inch TV now costs like $200 right so I mean like the, you know cost and and things have shifted that I, you know I can be more comfortable in my home and I think what we've learned in this pandemic is that yeah our family might get annoying 
or there might be a dog barking in the background or, you know, our kids might walk in on a meeting, but we can still do it. We can still work. And I think that's why you're seeing like Square and Twitter and uh, um, Shopify and these companies saying like, hey, we're going to have a, a good work from home policy uh, from here on out. So it's, it's definitely, um, yeah, the world has definitely changed. And yeah, I, I don't think that people are going to pay for content in the same way. I do think there are opportunities for people to participate uh, in different ways too. And so, you know, kind of drawing back a little bit of the blockchain um, aspect of this is that there's a lot of people that have had these um, use cases where like you can, you know, make money off of your data. And I think we'll, we'll start to see like Brave does a little bit of that in, in a slight mm -hmm. capacity. Um, I think we'll start to see more, more things like that um, where you, you, yeah, you pay with other elements. Um, but it'll be interesting to say where this all evolves to. Something else that we've noticed on our end uh, with UW Blockchain Hacks is when we originally kind of made this event, it was a UW-centered event. So we were thinking, okay, what's well, going to be centralized at UW in person? You know, last year we had like 650 people come to Kane Hall. It was packed, two floors, you know, all day long. Awesome. But it was mostly centered in one location. This time, because it was online, we were able to get participants from all over the world. And I think a lot of them were just more interested in joining because they were able to join from wherever they are. So, you know, do you think that once this kind of goes back, do you think those walls will kind of go back up? Or do you think that people will try and combine the kind of hybrid approach now where we have an online component and an in-person component? Like, do you still think that, uh, like, we'll be able to fill up Kane Hall, 650 people, 700 people buying tickets to come to this thing? Or do you think people will be too scared? Uh, just, no. You know, I, you know, I don't think you'll be able to fill it up in the next one or two years um, again um, for two reasons. One is because of, yeah, like people being afraid uh, or, um, and, and then two, because of the comfort, right? It's like, wait, I, I can consume the same level at home. But I do think you'll, you will have core people that do want to be in person because no one can deny that the connections that you're able to make in person are always going to be stronger than what you can make um, online. And you can make connections online over time, but when you're next to someone and you, you get the opportunity to kind of, you know, be personal with them and joke around it, you will typically, and in a shorter period of time, I should say it's easier to make a connection. Right. So I think you will still have um, that, but I think content, all over everything will start to become more um, gamified and more interactive in, in how we participate. And so, and I think through this situation, we'll start to see startups that think in that capacity, you know, so like imagine if you're watching The Last Dance, um, which was the Jordan documentary, and then you get to participate in what's happening right like voting right then and there or like commenting with other people because you can do that on youtube right if we were watching the last dance on youtube there would be a screen a, a streaming situation on the side where people would be commenting and so i think we're going to start seeing the fringe behavior of how the um 
how the uh, misfits have participated and misfits in my opinion is a good thing actually like the, those are the people that uh, are um, I, I think of it as a positive right like they're the people that are forgotten and you know doing things in these interesting ways that actually uh, have taken over pop culture and how we consume you know uh, content uh, overall so um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I just went to, uh, I saw the Fortnite. They had like a Fortnite concert. With Travis Scott. That, that was crazy. Right? Yeah, that broke the record, right? That was the most like live stream thing ever. Um, and I kind of, you know, I like this kind of topic of just kind of where we're going after COVID. I think a lot of people will be really fascinated in this. And another kind of piece of news I heard the other day was a really interesting statement kind of going back to Coinbase. They said right now they have 10 floors in one city. Uh, San Francisco, that's their main office. And they said after what they'd like to do is have one floor in 10 cities and yeah. decentralize their workforce. So take that kind of concept of Bitcoin blockchain and apply that decentralization to their workforce. And I thought that was a pretty cool idea, um, you know, because then people don't have to necessarily live in a tech hub or center to work at one of these great companies. They could work, you know, out of whatever city they wanted. Um, so I, I think that people are taking innovation where they can out of this. And even in our own workforce, I was kind of surprised how seamless the transition was. We were, I think we were all kind of, you know, holding on and, and really anxious about going totally online um, with the blockchain society, I mean. But what really happened was we just ended up communicating more. We built more channels to deal with it. We had more meetings online. And we realized we were able to get just as much work done and sometimes even more work done because we didn't have to wait to, you know, where can we meet in person? Where can we do the schedule? We would just, you know, here's a Zoom link, jump on, and people would kind of engage with that a lot better than I thought they would. And I think it kind of opened our eyes to what was possible. So I agree. I mean, so, so uh, crazy yeah. prediction here that I don't know that I'm ready for personally um, is so what you just talked about is super interesting. I've experienced the same thing with how I've done my interviews where sometimes I would need to schedule an interview months in advance for our podcast. And I can uh, even schedule them even hours in advance, right? I might reach out to someone like, oh, well, why don't we do it tonight? I have this window at this time. I'm like, sure, you can't do that in person. And so this is a crazy prediction is, um, one things do in fact get back to you know normal or whatever normal is um or people are around more each other and we also have um vr and ar more accessible i think the with the same ease that you coordinated with your blockchain society and i've coordinated with my guests you will be able to do that via ar so meaning like you're, we're at home or i'm at home and i'm like yeah i want to interview you and we're doing this interview and we're doing this interview as like an ar interview or like and, That'd and be like, so cool. right and like we're just like you know i'm either doing it from my phone or I don't know, I have like this chip in the back of my head from the matrix. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'll be the last one to get that. But um, I do think from like an AR, like a goggle perspective or glasses, I, I really see stuff like that happening. Yeah. Did you, did you attend the VR halving party? I know there was a couple of those. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any VR stuff and um, it wasn't interesting to me, to be honest, until now. Um, until COVID. AR has always been super fascinating to me and I, I've always been able to buy into AR. I haven't been able to buy into VR, 
But like I said, with COVID-19, I can totally see why, how VR could really actually have a massive impact. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Victor Rodchenko, who is the co-founder of Trust Wallet. Um, they're they're a, a cryptocurrency wallet. Anyways, I interviewed him recently, and he was telling me that uh, right now they have all their team meetings via VR. And I was like, that's <laughs> super interesting. Like, so that, yeah, they'll go and they put on their headsets, they go in a room and they all chat via VR, which is like what a, we're living in the future, right? Like this is the future right now. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, and I think, you know, even from like a personal level, like, um, like my grandpa, he's like 80, 86. He can't use VR, but he can use messenger and he's, he can't leave his house, right? He's scared because there's COVID. And sure. now he's like, Oh my God, I feel like I'm with my whole family all the time, even though it's totally. just pictures. So it's like you take someone like that, you put give them VR and it will change the world. So totally well, agree. What's cool on what you're talking about there is um, a couple of weeks ago, my whole entire family um, who were, were all over the world now, um, we did a, a Zoom call and it was just two and a half hours of, you know, making fun of each other and laughing. And we were, ha we had so much fun. We're like, we're not around each other anyway. Like, why haven't we done this before? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's <laughs> yeah. like, there was no reason we couldn't have done this pre-COVID, but we're like, hey, this is something we should do. You know, Zach, I want to ask you a couple of questions with what you're doing. So, uh, totally, totally. I, you know, I know the, the Blockchain Society has been going for a few years now. Um, what's changed since, you know, when it was probably you and a couple other people, I assuming, to where you're at today? That's a great question. So... It kind of started on, I remember the day because it was Valentine's Day, 2017. And, and, no, and no one had dates. No, I, I had my girlfriend. <laughs> kid, <but> I, <laughs> just kidding. No, no, I know. But totally. And I, but I just knew. I don't know why. It was just like lightning hit me that day. And I was like, we, I don't know. I just had the feeling that we needed to start the club. So uh, UW makes you have five people to start a club with. So I literally just went to four people in the class I was in that day. And I was like, we need to start a crypto club. Uh, which was what the idea was at the time. And the reason I kind of got behind that was because, uh, you know, Bitcoin was shooting up. People were getting really excited about the industry. I'd walk into a classroom. I kid you not. We'd have, this is going on. And you know what I mean by this? Refreshing the price over yeah. and over and over and over again. You have classrooms like that. Yeah. Um, and people talking about this, but there was no central location to combine them. Yeah. So I got... I, I Sorry, I was going to say, I'm, I, I always w wonder like how I might have been in university like during these super exciting like tech times right like so that's why i said when i was talking about my backstory is like you know i was i was in there pre-iphone and so things yeah yes people were doing things in tech but it wasn't as exciting as it was you know when the iphone came sorry go ahead <laughs> no totally right and then you know you had guys like oh man i put in you know ten thousand dollars i just made like a hundred grand right so you have these people in school talking about how they made all this money so there's just all this buzz craziness going on uh, so we, we put a stake in the ground, founded the Blockchain Society, pretty much five guys in a library room. Uh, from there, we realized, is, you know, we needed PR, we needed to make this tangible, because at the time, like, nobody knew what the hell crypto was, or blockchain, or actually how to even interact, right? It was just this tangible idea. So we did is we went out there, we literally put down a stand with a fishbowl filled with paper wallets with Dogecoin on them, like a 30 cents worth of Dogecoin. So we had like 100 wallets in this big bowl on a table we put a bit okay crappy sign just wrote free crypto on it put it out there in the middle of the u-dub like plaza right 
and it was like a spectacle. We had like a hundred people lined up. It went in, it went in, I don't know, minutes pretty much. We, we actually awesome. had them, we had the media come. Uh, so it was like this whole spectacle with the media, you know, watching us give out this crypto. I was interviewed, ended up going on the front page of the Everett, Everett Herald. So it was like, even from the beginning, it, it just kind of exploded. And, uh, you know, we were getting all these kind of connections from Microsoft and Amazon and T-Mobile because they all had just started blockchain departments at the same time we had started the club. At the time, the schools, they, they had no idea what to do. I remember going, uh, not going to name names, we went to someone very high up at UW and Ripple at the time was giving away millions of dollars in funding. And we were like, we need to raise our hand and say, we are working on this. We need funding. And they were like, we don't know what this is. What is Bitcoin? They yeah. were totally lost. So they, they just missed it. But yeah, I, time, I, reached, yeah. I reached out to people at UW also saying like, Hey, like I'm willing to like teach a course on this stuff. And they're like, do you think this is going to be a thing? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Yes. Please pay attention. Yeah. Anyway. So we tried, but it didn't matter because the students loved it. Right. So yeah. I think we started with five students who are our members and officers today. We have around 40 full-time officers who we, you know, we interview. they're working on projects all the time, building out these events, they're well organized in teams so everything is very functional almost runs like a startup um we have about 750 members so that's you know students at uw who come to our events interact with us and then our total network is around 1500 that includes professionals who have come to our events that kind of thing so you know we are really proud of the work that's happened we never thought when we founded this club again five guys in a library room that we'd be doing events with Microsoft and Google, who we had events with this last year, um, you know, and having students from Harvard hack with us and find us out and our marketing would be good enough that we would attract this kind of attention. So for me, it's been just incredibly, you know, amazing. And it's really because of the work of our team and this UW students. I think the thing that has amazed me the most and what I've been most proud of and astonished with is the brilliance and work ethic of students. Um, you know, they are extremely passionate, smart, and hardworking. We created a brand from nothing. That was all students made. We created a, yeah. we couldn't take in money. When we had sponsorship, we were like, we can't, where are we taking money? Like they need to write blockchain society at UW on a check and hand that. Well, we don't have a bank account to take that into. So we had to literally found a nonprofit to take in funding so that then we could go rent out buildings at Kane Hall and hold our events. Yeah. So there was just so many things we had to actually learn to do that professionals, you know, have to do in their jobs that we just didn't know that we were going to have to get into. But, you know, through the determination, hard work and skill of UW students, we were able to build this out. Um, and, you know, if they didn't know something, if we didn't know something, they would go out and learn it. And that was kind of the attitude that, that made us so successful. And so I think that's what's kind of carried us through even today. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm assuming a lot of the students uh, who are part of the group end up like wanting to continue to pursue, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency as they continue to graduate and things like that too, right? Yeah, so all over the spectrum. I mean, I think our, you know, our co-founders, one of them works at Apple, one of them is at, uh, is an editor. I think Mitchell, Mitchell, you know, Mitchell, he's an editor yeah. of a, a major crypto publication now. So, you know, it's really been cool to see. We've, we've definitely had positions all over and then the success kind of rolls back in. So like James, for example, he was one of our officers. He works at PayPal now. Now he comes back and gives events with us. And then we help him create content to teach PayPal employees about Bitcoin and blockchain. 
So it's kind of like a really nice cycle where they graduate, they give back to the club, and then they can kind of promote them in the industries and companies that they're in. And, you know, as that, as we just kind of grow and we just see that interacting more and more and kind of like a shout out to you and other alumni, our biggest supporters always have been UW alumni. UW alumni are always there for us. They reach out, they help, you know, so really, really glad that UW has been such a, you know, welcoming and positive community because honestly, I've talked to some of the other club presidents. uh, I'm not going to say which school, but it was a school in New York. And when they tried to launch their club, this, the school banned it. They were like, nope, you're not having a Bitcoin or a blockchain club on our campus. It's not allowed. And they had to fight that for two years to get it through. Wow. You know, luckily, we didn't have that kind of issue. So I think we can be pretty grateful uh, for where we're at. Yeah. So one thing that's for, that I think is super fascinating is when we think about how technology adoption overall usually takes place, um, there's no doubt that youth drive that, right? And so um, when we think about like TikTok as a great example, <laughs> you know, TikTok has been seen as this thing that's strictly a Gen X um, uh, app. I, I'm on TikTok, I don't post TikToks, but I, I, I do, I've, I've been studying it because I think it's super fascinating. I, I have some ideas actually of, of how that evolves with some technology, but I, I do notice that there's quite a bit of older millennials, Gen Xers, um, and even baby boomers on there. And so where my question goes on this is when we think about cryptocurrency, like, you know, I would say that from the OG perspective, you know, it's across the spectrum as far as age. And then as new people come in, it is definitely a young, younger demographic. So um, what are your thoughts or what are you seeing from college students is it strictly the people that are in your sphere from the society that are paying attention? Or do you notice that even people outside of, you know, blockchain society are like, they're, they're really thinking about this overall? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, and it's definitely the sphere of, in, the sphere of influence is growing constantly. Um, when we first started, it was Bitcoin people, right? So it was everyone who joined, they wanted to talk about the price of Bitcoin. Now, nobody joins really for that. I don't know the last person we've interviewed to have that. Um, we have people from engineering, marketing, design. And, and the reason that we're able to uh, affect so many of these spheres, uh, for better or worse, is largely because there's so many industries right now that need talented employees and there's just no schools to fill them. And so because of that, we're able to kind of promote a lot of the UW students to fill these positions at companies uh, in internships and projects in general. So I think you know, that's been a you know, really good part of it. Kind of to also talking about the age piece of it, I think part of what I've done and what the club has done is educating people of all ages. So something that I did, for example, for UW this last year was I taught a extended learning class for OSHER, which is for uh, folks over 55 years old. So UW actually reached out to me and they said, hey, Zach, you know, would you like to teach a Bitcoin and blockchain class for people who are over 55? We've seen a lot of interest in Bitcoin and blockchain in this group, which is crazy to me, right? Because we're just talking yeah. about all this excitement for college students. These are people who are mostly them were in their 60s or even 70s. No, it's, and the, yeah, the it's, class sold out. The class sold out. So it's kind of crazy to see that, you know, we had a ton of interest, too, from older folks. And I was able to teach them about Bitcoin and blockchain and they were really excited to learn. Yeah, actually, one of, so one of my largest demographics of my listeners is uh, 45 plus. So which like you would, you know, some people, a lot of people might not think that. Yeah, the, I guess more the where I was going with that, too, is just is yeah. that if if the, you know, high school and college students 
are thinking from a cryptocurrency first mentality you know that means like in 10 years from now when there are they are like fully in in the job force they're likely going to be wanting to get paid in you know bitcoin or cryptocurrency or whatever that mech they're going to be more aware of it right so no it, it's it's super interesting just to think about the psychology uh around money i, I had someone on my uh, podcast a couple of days ago his name's eric jansen and we were just talking about the history of money and we were talking about fiat currencies and like how kings would put their faces on the gold pieces and it was you know part of it is because <laughs> like that was how they would pay soldiers right and it's like one of the earliest instances of why you would pay people money is so you could pay them for war and you know you start to start thinking about like all these social constructs all the way throughout and um you know for anybody listening i, I think one of the best things that you can do is yeah just really understand the psychology behind how behind commerce i i always say actually if i could do college over again I would try to major or create my own major and have it be uh, commerce, psychology of commerce, right? Like why people spend, why people hold their money, like just understanding that. I think the people that understand that, um, if you're in business, will, will, will be monstrous. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I think that's extremely interesting, especially for something like crypto, which trades 365, 24-7. Yeah, yeah. Well, Zach, um, what are some ways that people can, uh, you know, keep supporting uh, UW blockchain and, and, you know, get in contact with you and, and so forth that, that uh, what are the, what are the best ways for people to be involved? For sure. So you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, we're on LinkedIn. You can add me on LinkedIn, uh, e email us at info at uwblockchain.org. We also have a website. So, you know, we're, we're pretty easy to find. Um, but yeah, we definitely love people to reach out, connect with us. Uh, we're going to continue to put out great educational content, events, you know, as I graduate, there'll be new teams coming on too. So, you know, just kind of look forward. We're, we're going to continue to grow this out and we're kind of excited with uh, the future of blockchain and crypto. Awesome. Awesome. What's, uh, if you've listened to my show, you, I wish I know you have, you know, I like to end with this. Uh, what is a question that you want to ask people that they can think about as they go about their day? I think people, as they go about their day, should try and think of if what they're doing now is going to make their life better in 10 years, like literally that, like on a day-to-day -day basis. And if it's not, maybe they should try and change it because I think that the small things add up over time. Yeah, I love that. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks again for, for joining me and, and actually letting me join you as well. I appreciate uh, the questions that you asked me and it's, it's been good to, to have this uh, talk. I'm, I'm really excited to see what uh, the Blockchain Society continues to do. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of you guys and a big fan of UW, of course. So uh, whatever I can do to be supportive, um, you know, please count on me. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. you having me on the show. Yeah. Uh, everyone, thanks for listening to this special episode of the TF Podcast uh, with the UW Blockchain Society and their uh, UW Block Hacks, which is going on right now. Uh, please make sure that you are subscribed uh, wherever you like to listen to this uh, podcast, as well as do us a favor and rate and review. Uh, goes a long way for us. Uh, you can follow me at JG Product or us at tfblock.io. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all soon.